0: And welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway.
1: And I'm Joe Weisenthal.
0: So, Joe, I think, uh, oh, I'm trying to remember now. It must have been maybe four or six weeks ago. You were away and I recorded an Odd Lots all by myself. And I felt really bad because it was a really good episode. I think you would have enjoyed it. It was the one with Mitu Galati and we were talking about debt defaults.
1: Yeah, Tracy, I was sad to have missed that one. I mean, I don't think you should feel bad, per se, that you did it alone without me, because, you know, it's sort of uh, occasionally I'll do one solo, you do one solo, we pick up for each other. But I do like that topic a lot, and so, yes, I wish I'd been part of it.
0: Well, as my personal gift to you, uh, we are going to do a sort of redux episode. We're not talking about defaults or sovereign debt restructurings in general. We're going to talk about one very, very specific instance of a debt default. In fact, it's probably one of the most famous of all time. It's certainly one of the biggest. In fact, depending on your definition of debt defaults and how you actually measure it, it is the biggest one of all time. Do you know what it is?
1: No, so I was just going to say, this is really embarrassing to me because I I know which one we're doing, and if someone had said, what is the biggest uh, sovereign debt default of all time, you say, oh, this is the most famous one, I don't even know if this one would have occurred to me. So I'm kind of embarrassed by the fact that (laughs) I apparently didn't even know in advance what the most famous of the category was.
0: Yeah, I think most people would probably you'd say Argentina, wouldn't you? I I think you'd say Argentina. Yeah.
1: I might have said uh Russia in the late 90s.
0: Oh yeah, okay. Well, that's closer. It is it's Russia, but it's Russia in the early 1900s, so it's the famous uh, 1918 repudiation of Russian debt once the uh, Russian Revolution happened. And it's a really interesting moment in time in international finance because it touches on all these themes that you and I like to talk about. One of them is bubbles, right? Russia issued an incredible amount of debt in the run-up to 1918. Loads of people bought it, and then suddenly the whole thing collapsed. But the other really interesting idea here is the sort of notion of a safe asset that suddenly becomes not so safe. There is a moment in time when Russian sovereign debt was considered, you know, really, really pristine, almost like U.S. Treasuries today. And the other big theme has to be the politicization of debt or the ideology behind debt. And that's something that you and I have touched on at one point or another. In fact, maybe most recently with modern monetary theory.
1: I'm uh, I'm very excited about this for all of the reasons you laid out. So who are we talking to?
0: So today's Odd Lots guest is Hassan Malik. He is the author of Bankers and Bolsheviks, International Finance and the Russian Revolution. And he is also an emerging markets hedge fund analyst. So Hassan, thank you so much for coming on.
2: Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me.
0: So this book was a really, really great read. I'm just wondering... Why did you decide to focus on this particular episode of international finance?
2: It it goes back to my days working at an investment bank in Moscow and really living in the center of the Russian capital. I was walking around every day and struck by the degree to which banks from before the revolution are present in the built environment in the city center, be it the the Lubyanka, which is the former headquarters of the KGB. Be it uh, old bank bank branches that are repurposed as modern uh, retail or office space, and really, when I was in graduate school and studying financial history, what really struck me was the degree to which this financial past of Russia was largely unremarked in the histories that we we have of the of of that time period.
1: Yeah, Tracy led in with, uh, "Oh, this is the most famous uh, debt default of all time." So I'm glad that there's at least some people who have, you know, forgotten about this period. Who I imagine, like me, this episode would not have uh, been top of mind when thinking about debt defaults. But before we get to the default, obviously, what was it about Russia at the time that caused so much money to pour into there and for their government bonds to be seen as, uh, you know, a relative safe haven asset? So
2: Russia was in many ways the emerging market boom story of the time. The Russian government was actively tapping the international bond market to build up gold reserves so that it could go onto the gold standard and also to help finance an industrialization drive led principally by the railroad industry. It really was in many ways not unlike China today, both a massive player in the emerging markets, uh, markets finance story as well as uh, geopolitically speaking, a great power at the center of European and indeed global power politics.
0: Right. So you mentioned the geopolitical aspect of all of this. Talk to us about who exactly was buying the debt that Russia was selling, because, you know, obviously, it's an emerging market play. Lots of people want a piece of that. But you talk a lot about the political dimension of the foreign investors who were basically funding the Russian government at this point.
2: Right. So basically what was happening at the time was Germany was rising, and this was a story that was complicating the European balance of power in, in diplomatic and geopolitical terms. Uh, now at the time, France had the highest savings rate in Europe, and France was threatened by a rising Germany, uh, which it had fought a war with, uh, in the late 19th century. Russia, in in similar vein, was eyeing what was happening in Germany with some concern in in various circles of the Russian government. And so this is really what underscored uh, not only a diplomatic, but a financial alliance between the Russian and French governments. And ultimately, what this led to was a huge amount of retail money moving into Russian bonds that were perceived at the time to be very safe investment-grade assets. And so that's in some ways one of the big contrasts with the present-day emerging markets boom insofar as it was really French individual savers and then over time their counterparts in Britain and elsewhere in the West that were investing in Russian government and corporate securities uh, over the course of the late 19th and early 20th centuries.
1: I'm, something that I'm interested in is the idea of government debt just, or just this idea of safe haven assets it always kind of feels modern to me. And I think about the U.S. Treasury market and there's all kinds of very good reasons why we price everything or so many bonds, whether it's uh, foreign debt or uh, private credit markets, there's a spread to U.S. Treasuries and that's a common way to sort of measure the perceived riskiness of uh, any other asset class. When did this concept of safe haven assets emerge and you know thinking back to retail investors in the early part of the 20th century when did these ideas like start to form about uh what was a safe asset and how much part of one's portfolio one might want to allocate to them
2: well it's it's a great question and it's fundamental to kind of this this story of the Russian and other emerging markets booms i suppose it goes back to uh, the first times people started thinking about investing outside their home home markets. And in that sense, as emerging markets deepened in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, a hierarchy began to form of which markets were perceived as riskier versus those which were perceived as closer to home, both physically and in terms of a risk profile. And in that sense, Russia was very much seen as a quote unquote European great power country, Uh, It wasn't seen as some semi-colonial domain out in Asia or Africa. It was seen very close, both physically and in terms of the risk profile, to core European economies such as Britain, France or Germany.
0: So there are all these characters in your book that are strategically fueling what's eventually going to become a Russian debt bubble on the Russia side There's a relatively well-known finance minister. And then there are all these, I guess, lesser-known bankers from London and Paris who are sort of deployed to start making these investments. Talk to us about the actual people. You call them gatekeepers. The gatekeepers to Russian debt investment.
2: Yeah. So this is a concept that I borrowed from a, a scholar on sovereign debt by the name of Mark Flandreau. And I think he very aptly described the way capital markets worked both in the past and the present that is even though you have debtors and and savers the process of channeling those flows of capital happens of course through the banks and the bankers and the and the investment managers that are present both in current markets as well as in the past and that to me was a very interesting Nexus of people, because they were ultimately individuals with all the the biases and the prejudices and the imperfections of 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 individual human beings. and that's really why i I wrote this as a as a history book, as a story of of people trying to feel their way through very difficult and imperfect markets. At, at really a pivotal moment in world history. So one of the things that comes out, for example, is the degree to which national biases and patriotism at a time of geopolitical tension and ultimately war fed through to investment decision-making and how this wasn't just a story of clinical analyses of, of balance sheets or of macroeconomic accounts, but rather also of humans trying to think their way through uh, very confusing and, and fuzzy market environments.
1: You talk about these gatekeepers, but what specifically were the decisions that they made that uh, were so pivotal in getting a flow of funds to Russia?
2: So there were several. Um, In one instance, in early 1906, when the Russian government was really on the ropes, financially speaking, and on the verge of having to suspend convertibility of, of rubles into gold, the banker stepped in with a very key loan, which at the time was the largest ever recorded in history. And this really happened because of two bankers in particular in Paris and London respectively who had cultivated relations with the Russian finance ministry, which the ministry levered to great effect in 1906. Another example is the opening of the first branch of what is now Citigroup in Russia in early 1917, the very year of the revolution. Uh, And again, reading the correspondence that the bank had internally, it's very evident that this was a decision that came to a large part because of the man on the ground and his feelings about Russia and its prospects, not only long term, but because of a sense of almost responsibility on the part of the U.S. towards Russia and on the part of an American businessman towards uh, his Russian counterparts at a time of war.
0: Yeah, I love that anecdote, because it's just amazing to think that Citi was opening a branch uh, on the eve of the Russian Revolution. On that note, you know, you just mentioned the loan that basically saved Russia in 1905 or 1906. Why did investors hold on for so long? And why didn't they push the czarist government for more reform after they extended that loan?
2: Well, it's a great question and it's uh, got a very complicated dynamic behind it. In one sense, there were conflicting arguments both in favor of and against uh, extending loans. One argument, of course, is it's an anti-democratic government and supporting them will just uh, encourage bad behavior. Another argument counter to that was that actually engagement is how one push development and ultimately... A better direction in in Russian policymaking. The other story, of course, here, and this is where the gatekeepers were not just bankers, but also ministry officials in Russia itself, was that the Russian government became very adept at leveraging the exposure that foreign governments and banks had to the Russian economy to great effect. So By the time the 1906 loan came up for discussion, the French had already invested so significantly into Russia that it really becomes a question of whether it was the creditors that had more power over the debtor or vice versa.
1: I love Tracy's question about why didn't the investors in these bonds push more reform? Because it seems like such a modern question. And I'm imagining uh, like all the same reform talk we hear about in EM these days about like.
0: Like with the IMF.
1: Yeah. And, you know, cutting pension obligations and privatizing state-owned power plants and all these things that constitute reform these days. What does that mean, though? Like, what were the things that would have constituted reform in the early 1900 like what was it what were the equivalent of those things
2: well it's funny you you make the comparison with today because in many ways a lot of the the discussion points were very similar the same things that we think about uh, as problematic in russia today and that are often ascribed to the soviet past things like corruption bureaucracy rule of law issues were things that investors at the time were talking about in Russia with respect to the Tsarist regime. And indeed, at the time, as we got closer to 1917, there was such a frustration in foreign investment circles with the Tsarist regime on exactly these points, rule of law, bureaucracy, inefficient policymaking, that there was almost a pining for some sort of change. Uh, and in some circles, even an attraction towards the revolutionaries because they promised something different.
0: So in in the build up to 1917 1918 what were the signs that trouble was brewing in the Russian debt market what were the signs that the bubble was going to burst
2: well, it's interesting because when the war breaks out in 1914, there's actually kind of a rally in the Russian economy and financial markets. And this is partly because it kicked off an industrial boom because of wartime production increases and whatnot. And so really the first couple of years of the war, you see the spreads, the, that is the yields on Russian government bonds relative to the, the, the investment grade benchmark, which was British treasuries at the time, shrink to multi-year and even multi-decade lows in just weeks and months before the the wheels really came off in Russia. And eventually what you started to see were indicators in the real economy start to turn over. If you look at the primary market data from when the Russian government was issuing new bonds into the market, despite their attempts at financial repression, you start to see more onerous terms that the debt markets are inflicting on the on the Russian government. But really, until very, very quite late in the game bond market participants weren't really showing signs of alarm. In fact, one of the things that I was shocked by was that even after the moment of default, when the yields explode, they explode quite dramatically. But when you compare them to relatively recent defaults that had happened in the time in in Argentina and Greece, the spreads hadn't been blown out to those levels, which indicated to me that investors still held out more hope in Russia, even after the communist takeover, than they had held out in Greece and Argentina in the late 19th century.
1: That is pretty remarkable. Now, thinking back, you know, to some of these more recent defaults, like, obviously, people, uh, you know, we recognize the various political things that go on in these countries that precede the default But there is a lot of focus still, despite that, on sort of pure attempts to quantify debt sustainability uh, within any of these countries. And they fixate on debt to GDP and primary surpluses or primary deficits or cyclically adjusted surpluses. These sort of attempts to just put into numbers how sustainable a country's debt is. And I'm always sort of skeptical about the value of those numbers in the modern situation, But I'm curious, like what the tensions in the lead up to the Russian default tells us about what indicators are actually of any use when trying to assess that the end game is nigh.
2: Yeah, that's that's a great question. I mean, one of the things that is different from in the past case versus today is at the time, the macroeconomic accounts were both simpler and different in terms of what investors would look at. So for example, they didn't have access to statistics like GDP because they weren't really thought of in those terms back then. What they did look at, not unlike today, are things like export numbers and and a rough proxy for the current account position in in a country. There was a consciousness about the level of debt, both in in absolute terms and in relative terms. But I have to say the the Russian finance ministry did a good number by shifting the the accounting around such that they created two different budgets, uh, an ordinary quote-unquote budget and extraordinary uh, budget, And there was a lively debate in investment circles about which numbers investors should be looking at. And also another complicating factor was at the time of war, investors that may have looked at hard-nosed analyses of of raw numbers started also including in their thinking things like Russia's alliance with the West at the time of the war and the long-term prospects of Russia, saying that even if right now things look rather stressed, over the next 100 years say russia still has a good future ahead of it which brings to to mind the 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 saying that every long term investment is really a speculation gone bad
0: it's almost like an intangible asset for a company right you're sort of factoring the sort of i guess like aura around the country Okay, so Hassan, talk to us about the moment of debt repudiation. You know, we're building up to 1917, 1918. What was the decision-making process that went into, ultimately, the decision to just repudiate all the debt that had been issued under the Tsarist government?
2: So one of the things that really struck me when I was reading through all the archival material on this was the degree to which this was a... A very complicated decision. There is a tendency in the histories uh, that have come out on this period to just write this off as, of course, the communists came in and, of course, they defaulted. Uh, In reality, it was a very complicated decision because, yes, the communists hated the bankers and the financiers and the capitalists, but there were also some, so there was, you know, this ideological backdrop to it, but there was also some very practical considerations. So, One of the things was the revolutionaries basically had their support in urban centers, and many of them were really not representative of Russia as a whole, which was still a very agrarian country. So coming in and talking about repudiating the debts was a very shrewd way of building support amongst the peasantry, which had run up mortgage debts in the process of land reform uh, that had preceded the revolution. There's also the counterfactual situation, which is that if the Bolshevik revolution had not succeeded in late 1917, and and there's plenty of reason to argue that it could not have succeeded in a different scenario because it was such a closely run thing, you have to ask yourself, what would a different government have done? And one of the arguments that I make in the book is that if you look at the numbers and if you look at the situation and how badly the Russian economy um, had started to perform by late 1917, that even a more pro-Western, even a more liberal government at the time would have had to default. And so it's, yes, partly a story of this ideology, but partly it's also a story of practicality. And the other thing that I would say is that at the time that the Bolsheviks came in, they really inherited the keys to essentially the largest country on earth. And they were so taken up by the mechanics of running this large country that it took Quite some time, it took a number of weeks before they were actually able to issue a decree repudiating the debts, which also created its own levels of confusion and, and, and uncertainty in the market.
1: Uh, I know we, we talked about how big this was, but uh, what are the numbers? like how big was Russia you know in terms of the nominal amount of outstanding debt and how much of a slice of the credit markets or sovereign bond market were they at the time?
2: Right. So they were the, the largest international debtor on a net basis uh, on the eve of the war. The U.S. was larger on a gross basis, but they would then re export a lot of the capital elsewhere, and frankly, in emerging markets. Uh, if you look at default in roughly contemporary terms and sort of uh, late 2012, 2013 sort of dollars, you're looking at, at a default size that can easily be put at $300 billion. But really, given the size of Russia's uh, economy. And given the, the size of, of the debt at the time, if you translate it through some other inflation metrics, uh, you could easily make the argument that this was on the scale of a trillion dollar default, uh, which just underscores the, the gap between Russia in 1918 and Greece and Argentina
1: more recently. What were then the knock-on effects for the bag holders, so to speak? Because even with Greece, which was uh, you know, so much smaller, there were all these fears about contagion throughout the entire financial system and that the system couldn't handle an outright greek default what happened with the holders and who bore the brunt of it
2: well really this is one of the tragic stories is that uh, a lot of the people that got hit by this were ordinary savers in the west i mean when i when i talk to my french colleagues uh, in the markets today Many of them have stories of grandparents and great-grandparents who were rendered destitute by the default. There's to this day internet fora of descendants of French bondholders that are still demanding restitution. There were a series of deals that were done. So in in one deal that was consummated in 1986, uh, bondholders essentially got four cents on the dollar. Um, None of this was inflation adjusted. And so really, it was a story of individuals that lost out rather than the big institutions. And of course, the biggest sufferers were people in Russia themselves who entered this sort of monetary twilight zone of a collapsing real economy and hyperinflation.
0: So Hassan, what's the big takeaway for emerging market debt? Can you say that all bonds or all debt is political or ideological? Or is that just exacerbated with this particular example in financial history, because we're talking about, you know, Bolsheviks versus capitalists, basically?
2: well, I think you're you hit the nail on the head in in talking about the political dimension, and that I think is the the key takeaway is that all debt is ultimately political. In fact, some historians have talked about debt markets being the crucible of of democracy in in history, really uh, around the world. I think the, the lesson that I took away as as from an investment standpoint is that as important as the hard numbers analysis, thinking about balance of payments and, and GDP growth trajectories and whatnot are, the political dimension is so crucial. And in particular in emerging markets, investing is not something that happens in a vacuum. It's not just a clinical scientific process. When one is deploying capital in an emerging market, one is often taking, whether explicitly or implicitly, um, sides in a a political spectrum. And it's very important to be conscious of what those investments represent in that context.
0: I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there, but that was a really fascinating conversation. That was Hassan Malik, the author of Bankers and Bolsheviks. Thank you so much for coming on.
2: Thanks, Hassan. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: So, Joe, I really enjoyed that conversation, and I hope you did, too.
1: Oh, I love that conversation. The first thing we have to do is find one of these people that still holds some uh, pre-revolution Russian debt and do a, a follow-up episode on the ongoing legal fight to get remuneration. Don't we have to do that?
0: Hassan actually mentions this in the book, but there are internet forums for French uh, holders of Russian debt still to this day. It's amazing.
1: There's got to be like some lawyer involved with it. So let's, uh, let's try to book that person. Seriously.
0: Yeah. But the reason I found that whole uh, conversation so interesting is because, as I mentioned in the intro, it it touches on a number of things that, that you and I like to talk about, such as when bubbles burst and what the sort of turning point or warning signs are. But I think Hassan also does a really good job of talking about the sort of individual and personal decisions that go into fueling, in this case, a sovereign debt bubble.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, uh, I think, you know, this is something that I know I talk about a lot. We've brought up a lot, but, you know, we tend to just see all these assets as prices on the screen, you know, even with the debt today. But it's important to remember that it's like there are actual human beings who have to make the decision to invest in something or a human being who has to go out and make the sales pitch. And we still have that where we have, you know, a finance minister of some country will come to New York and meet with investors and explain why they should invest. And so understanding that a country is more than just the sum of its statistical parts, but that uh, people actually have to go out and flog this stuff and make decisions and make deals is sort of an uh, essential element to this. And just in general, I always love when we talk about stories that remind us how things that we think of as sort of modern in finance really aren't that modern. So the idea of allocation to uh, safe haven assets or thinking about the spread of Russian debt to uh, great uh, British debt at the time, just sort of all these things that feel extremely modern, but have been around forever.
0: Absolutely. So one other thing it really reminds you of is the sort of idea of weaponizing debt as well. So, you know, bankers obviously go into a country and and they're trying to make investments and make some money. But a lot of what went on with Russia took place among Russian politicians who either use the debt to uh, fund their various expansion plans, or in the case of the Bolsheviks, they basically weaponized debt by undermining the provisional government's attempts to sell it domestically. So there are all these sort of push and pull factors that are just really, really interesting. And I don't think you're right. We don't think about that enough.
1: You know, in retrospect, it seems hard to believe, but I love that detail about how even after they came to power, there was still like a fair amount of confidence among the debt holders that that it would be OK and that spreads hadn't really widened that much by historical standards. So, you know, it seems absurd in retrospect that that would have been the case, but it shows how you never know.
0: And it was still worthwhile opening a, a city branch in Moscow. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And also like to send a thank you to our Bloomberg colleague who suggested we interview Hassan. That's Gregor Stuart Hunter. You can follow him on Twitter at Gregor Hunter.
1: And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And you should definitely follow our guest on Twitter, Hassan Malik. He's at H. And be sure to follow our producers, Topher Forges, he's at Forges Tea, and Laura Carlson, she's at Laura M. Carlson. And don't forget to follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. Thanks for listening.